Internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber Trains, Trains, Trains. You might think of them, you might not think of them very often, but they make America run. Uh, getting stuff from point A to point B is more than a full-time job. Our world runs on logistical supply chains that are supported in large part by freight trains. Uh, but what happens if the people doing those jobs don't get much sleep. What happens when the company running trains implements systems that deprive its already wary workforce of much-needed Zs? Here to answer that question and talk about the American the American train situation is motherboard staff writer Aaron Gordon. We're going through three of his stories today. The first is the worst and most egregious attendance policy is pushing railroad workers to the brink. The other is what choice do I have? Freight train conductors are forced to work tired, sick, and stressed. And then if we have time, we're going to get into a weird little beef about Amtrak and Twitch. So stick around for that. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Matthew, for having me. All right, so the first and most important question is, let me be blunt, Aaron, is there a labor crisis in America today? Uh, first of all, excellent Simpsons reference. Thank, Thank you, you so much for opening with that. Uh, I, but the answer is, is yes. The, I mean, there, there is absolutely a, a crisis going on with uh, freight rail workers today, and it's a crisis that I think most Americans won't see because – one of the kind of beauties of freight rail is that for most people it kind of operates in the background. It just gets things uh, from, you know, where they're going or where they're coming from to where they're going out of most people's view. And it just kind of works as far as most people are concerned. Uh, but when it doesn't work, it has really, really profound consequences, both for our economy and for our safety. All right, well, let's do some real basic like scene setting up here at the first, because you know way more about trains than I do, and I'm going to assume most of chat as well. Um, what exactly is getting hauled on a freight train? Uh, the short answer is most everything that is important to our economy, um, but some things more than others, uh, because, you know, obviously the economics of moving things by freight rail is different than by trucks. Um and so freight rail tends to move things that are very heavy or difficult to move in trucks or that we move so much of that we like to do it in huge volumes all at once rather than, you know, in individual truckloads. So think things like like grain, like automobiles, uh, coal, thing, uh, oil, things, things like that. And um, another thing that's very commonly moved by freight trains are hazardous materials because it's a much safer way, generally speaking, to move goods than trucks, which are obviously moving on America's roads, which, you know, trucks get into car, get into crashes, um, are subject to, you know, the whims of, of each individual driver and nobody, and we like to avoid putting hazardous materials on trucks as often as possible for that reason. Also moving through populated areas much more commonly, all those other cars near the trucks, you know, like to avoid that if possible. So things like fertilizer, chemicals, um, generally things that if they got out of the train would be a huge problem for our air, water, quality, 
or are likely to explode um, often get move on trains as well. All right. So what is the crew for one of these things like? Uh, so it's two people, um, generally speaking, on these freight trains, uh, one conductor and one engineer. The engineer basically, broadly speaking, is responsible for the actual movement of the train. And the conductor is basically there to assist um, which may sound kind of vague, but uh, the workers I talk to think it's a really important job, especially as freight trains become longer. Um, many of them are multiple miles long at this point. And so if there's a problem, you know, on uh, any part of the train that's kind of far from the locomotive where the engineer is, you really probably need two people to, you know, one stay in the locomotive to, you know, continue managing the train, communicating with dispatch and all that kind of thing. And the other to actually go inspect or deal with the problem. Um, so and, and conductors also just kind of help out with situational awareness. You know, freight trains run 24 hours a day. Uh, a lot of times shifts are overnight traveling through, you know, completely deserted territory Uh it can and 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 freight rail uh, the workers on the train are not allowed to do things that truckers can do to kind of keep them awake whether that's like you know listening to a book on tape or a podcast or the radio or something like that freight rail workers can't do that uh because of federal safety regulations and so you know just think of being on a on a train in the middle of the night it, you're going like 20 miles an hour it's quiet that train's kind of rocking you back and forth you're in this big comfy captain's chair real easy to get drowsy um and so having two people there is a you know important safety mechanism for just keeping everybody awake and aware so uh it's important for that reason too right and that that kind of anecdote about being rocked gently back and forth to sleep kind of feeds into, I would say, the lead of your most recent story, which we've got linked up at the top. So what happened um, to the gentleman you interview at the top of this story? Yeah, so essentially he had a very he had a busy week at work but if you look just at you know and i looked at his you know work, uh work tickets essentially you know showing his pay stubs and hours worked um as part of the reporting for this story and fact checking of it and if you just looked at the raw number of hours worked you'd be like he had a busy week but not a crazy busy week but you have to but digging into the details um he was really really uh uh stressed and overworked and and didn't get enough sleep because the because of the way that freight rail schedules work and this is he basically had to work an overnight shift followed by a day shift followed by a day off where he was at a hotel at a terminal away from home with nothing to do just you know laying there basically um and then had to go back to work and then came home was unable to sleep had to go back to work again. So he basically ended up averaging less than five hours of sleep a night for a week straight, all while kind of getting this really inconsistent sleep pattern, you know, sometimes at night, sometimes a nap during the day, um, not able to get these really restful sleep that you want people to get when they're working a safety critical job. And so he ended up then having to work another overnight shift with all of this terrible sleeping pattern from all week. And he found himself falling asleep on the train, essentially. He was he was supposed to be running it, and uh, he caught himself falling asleep. He had taken six caf or, uh, he had taken six hundred milligrams of caffeine pills to try and stay awake, which is equivalent to about six cups of coffee. 
Um, and it didn't, it wasn't good enough. You know, he just kind of fell asleep despite his own power, you know, strength to try and stay awake. He couldn't help himself. And he was pretty sure that the engineer he was working with was also falling asleep too, for similar reasons. So I've got, before we really dive into what's going on here, I think that this is kind of a good thing to throw up at, at top. That'll, I think, come up a couple different times throughout the story. Um, Emery Lee 2014 asks, is the compensation of these train workers commensurate with the value that they bring to the economy? Yeah, so that's a great question. And pretty much to a person of, you know, the, the rail workers I've talked to for these stories, um, they say a pretty similar thing, which is we're paid, we're paid well. You know, we, we make, you know, somewhere between high five figures and low six figures, depending on how much they work. And they have great benefits. And until about five years ago, they they liked the job. You know, it had an inconsistent schedule. Um, and many of the drawbacks that we talk about, you know, in these stories existed to a much smaller degree before. Um, but what started happening about five years ago is all of the major freight rail companies. There are basically there are seven what's called class one freight rail companies, and they basically account for the vast majority of all freight rail traffic in North America. And they essentially run geographic monopolies or duopolies. They, you know, basically what happened is the government allowed them to have these geographic monopolies or duopolies in exchange for, you know, some oversight over their operations uh, that the government is supposed to provide. And about five years ago, these freight rail companies decided, you know, for various reasons that their number one goal was going to be to improve their operating ratios, which basically means their profits over uh, any and all other concerns. And so that naturally resulted in, you know, them looking at, okay, well, where can we cut the most money from from our expenses and labor is a huge expense for them you know they they have to pay a lot of money to the workers to keep the trains moving and keep them maintained and all that kind of stuff so they started cutting back on maintenance they started cutting back on workforce and since 2017 the class 1 railroads have lost about 33% of their workforce one out of every 3 workers has left the industry either by choice or by layoffs and it's because it's becoming an increasingly terrible place to work uh, because the companies are trying to squeeze as much profit out of their operations as they can, rather than trying to run a service that makes some profit, which they were doing in 2017, but also provides a fairly humane work environment. So now the so the upshot is uh, now freight rail workers still make good money. You know, they still say, yeah, the money is good, but it's not worth it anymore um, because they never see their families. They have to work in these dangerous environments and they generally just don't con- and they and they generally don't consider the job worth the pay anymore. Well, let's get into what's changed in the last five years is you you hyper focus on one of the companies, which is BNSF, and you look specifically at this thing called high viz. So what is mm-hmm. high viz? How has it changed the job? Sure. So high viz is an attendance policy, basically. Uh, and. What basically happened was BNSF instituted this new attendance policy starting on February 1st of this year. Before HiViz, BNSF's attendance policy was complicated. Um, It was very difficult for individual families to like even figure out how much time off uh, the workers got. But the upshot was it averaged to basically uh, five weekdays and two weekend days a month off. So seven days total. 
But critically, if they needed extra time off for emergencies, something came up, they needed to go to a doctor, they were almost always able to make that happen um, through various mechanisms in the old attendance policy. Uh, but under HiViz, all of that is completely changed. The way HiViz works is it's a points-based system. When it, imp- when it got instituted, every worker got 30 points. And you lose points every time you take a day off for almost any reason. There are a few exceptions where you don't lose points for taking days off. But almost every day off that a worker would actually want to take um, will result in a points deduction. And the points deduction range depending on uh, how much time you're taking off and for what reasons. But it's basically between 2 and 15 points. And the types of things that people most want to take days off for, whether it's there's a family emergency, there's an unpredictable event at home that they really need to be home for, they have to go to the doctor on fairly short notice, there's a holiday that they want to attend, any any of these types of things um, tend to have higher points deductions in the range of like 8 to 15 points. So, okay. So there's only one way to get points back. You know, so you lose points. Okay, whatever. There's only one way to earn points back, and that's to be available for work for 14 consecutive days. And when I say available for work, this is different than like on call that doctors have or other types of work. We're like, yeah, you're on call, but like, you know, you probably won't get a call. That's not how it is in Freight Rail. If you're on call, you're almost certainly going to go to work. Uh, within 24 hours. So when I say, you know, you're you're available for work 14 straight days, you're going to be working most of those days. And the days you aren't working, you're probably going to be held up at a hotel that's at the terminal city that you took a train to. And you're there for like probably 12 to 18 hours just waiting for, you know, to get it to get a job back to go home. So while you're at that hotel, you can't spend time with your kids. You can't do chores at home. You know, you can't take care of anything that needs to be taken care of. It's really just kind of dead time. Yeah, it's not really um, a day off. It's not really a restful period at all. You're just kind of stranded somewhere waiting to do another job to go back home, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so you can only so you so you work those 14 straight or you know you're you're on call for those 14 straight days. You get 4 points for that. So basically if you take a day off unexpectedly, let's say like a kid is sick, and your spouse isn't, you know, your spouse isn't available to watch them or something like that. You just have to stay with the kid. That would probably be somewhere between 10 and 15 points. So you'd have to work for, you know, between a month and six weeks straight to make up for those lost points. And so, okay, so, you lo- so you're eventually going to lose those 30 points probably, right? Right. Uh, just working on basic math. So when you lose those 30 points... Uh, basically you get written up, an investigation gets opened on you, and you get 15 points back. So it's like, okay, now you have 15 points. If you lose those 15 15 points again, uh, you get suspended for 20 days. And then if you lose those last 15 points, you're fired. It's just like, I'm barely keeping track of it as you're explaining to me. I can't imagine... Like having to juggle that when it means the difference between having a job and not having a job. That's that I think it, like and an it's even more amount of pressure to put on someone. And it's even more difficult than I just explained because like the one added element is unlike most jobs where you have shifts, like scheduled shifts in advance that you can predict your life around, railroading has never been like that. Um 
Which is, which, you know, again, this was a trade-off that most of the workers I spoke to knew about before they got in the industry and they were willing to accept that for the, for the, you know, pay and, and benefits that it aligned. But what's happened more recently is when you combine the high-vis system with that unpredictability, you get a really kind of hellish zombie state of a life in which your entire life is consumed by work. Because the only way they're scheduled is it works kind of, I, I was thinking of how to anal, uh, how, what the best analogy here is. And it kind of works more like a, a taxi line or like a deli line where you like take a number and then it goes up in the numbers and then you wait for it to call your number. So when you get off a shift, you, you know, have to, that there are regulations about how many hours you have to rest before you can be available for work again. Okay. So those hours pass, then your name goes to the bottom of what's called the board which is just a list of the employees available for work, essentially. And as trains come in to, to get, you know, that need workers, uh, workers get taken off the board to go work those trains. You get called to work on those trains. And it goes, you know, in order. So in theory, this should add some predictability to when you're going to work next. But the problem is the, the trains come in, you know, to, to, or the trains, you know, get sent out uh, on their runs in a very unpredictable fashion. It's basically whenever the company decides that the train is full enough to run. And so what ends up happening is the list won't move for a very long time, then it'll suddenly move a lot, and then it won't move again. And people can find that, you know, if they're like ninth or 10th on the list, all of a sudden they'll be second, you know, or something. And so that that makes it very, very difficult to predict even just what you're going to do you know, when you're with your day, when your name is on the bottom of the list and with the unpredictability of high viz and how difficult it is to get time off, you also have workers kind of gaming the list a little bit. I hate to kind of use that phrase, but I, you know, I'm just using it um, for ease of conversation. But um, what they end up doing is, you know, if they want to take what's called a layoff or a day off and take their name entirely off the board so they won't be called in. They wait until their name gets as close to the top as possible, right? It makes common sense to maximize how much time they're getting off. Um, but then the problem is if you find yourself down at the bottom of the board and, you know, five or six of the guys ahead of you are doing that thing where they're waiting till their name gets higher up to lay off, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself almost like next on the list because you had so many guys just suddenly drop off the board. So what, you know, the upshot of this is, um, I talked to spouses of railroad workers, talked to railroad workers themselves, and basically they're all like, I'm glued to my phone looking at that board when I'm not at work. Because it's just like, if I take, you know, a few hours to go do something else, I'll next thing I know, my phone will be ringing and I'll be getting called in and I'll be like, what the hell? I thought I was at the bottom of the board. So that kind of adds to the fact that like, there's just the the the, the work has become the life even when they're not at work. And it's, you know, it just adds to the stress level of the whole thing. In previously, before the system was implemented, it wasn't, it also wasn't great, but there was a, there was a mechanism by which people could say like, I need 24 hours and please leave me alone for 24 hours. Right. And now that's gone. Yeah, that's right. And there were a couple of different ways this was done depending on the situation. Like, so I talked to one worker who was sick. He woke up sick. Um, you know, with a, what sounded like kind of a stomach bug and, uh, you know, he, there, there, there are various ways in which under the old system, he could have taken 20, you know, take his name off the board for 24 hours until he felt better. And 
all of those ways under high viz have been taken out from under him. And I think the most telling one is, you know, there used to be a way where if, you know, even if all of the formal mechanisms couldn't be done for whatever reason, because a lot of them have become automated by algorithms that the company controls. And so you just like push a button saying, I want to lay off. And it's just like, your request has been rejected and you don't know why. So like there used to be a way to kind of override that where he you would call a super uh, a superintendent a local superintendent it was basically like a supervisor supervisor and you'd say you know look i'm i'm just really sick i can't work is there you know i i can't I, I can't go in and they'd override the system and that was it and you know it's like if you abuse the system then yeah some alarm bells would probably get rung but most of the time workers could find that if they called in and said look i'm throwing up all over the place i can't go to work they wouldn't have to go to work well as part of implementing high viz superintendents can no longer override those automatic rejections. And so what this worker I spoke to had to do was he had to go to work while he had a stomach bug, you know, and it's like, that's not the, that's not the health level you want from someone responsible for a train that may well be carrying dozens of, you know, oil tankers, you know, like, you know, or just like, or a fertilizer that could poison a whole town or, you know, just like all of these other nightmare scenarios, not to mention just more, uh, you know, it, not to mention just one, that's a deeply unpleasant work environment, you know, for this, for the workers. And two, like, you know, a lot of railroad tragedies don't involve mass catastrophes. They're just, you know, just quote unquote, one train colliding into another and two workers dying or someone hitting a car that maybe they shouldn't have hit that was crossing the tracks or other other types of things that don't get, you know, don't make international news, but are tragedies nonetheless. And those are more likely to happen when you have guys controlling the trains who you know, can't stop throwing up or whatever the situation is. All right, Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. If you are listening to the podcast, we'll be right back after this. If you're watching us on Twitch, we're going to keep on going. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, Cyber listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. We are on with Aaron Gordon. It is a train extravaganza episode. Um, Aaron chat has been asking this question a couple times now and getting into it a little bit. Are these workers unionized? What's going on? And can they push great back question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is another, you know, th- this story has been so interesting to report because there are so many threads here that really talk about kind of like where we're at with the American, uh, labor world and what it's like to be a worker in America these days. And so, Yes, uh, these workers are unionized. In fact, uh, one of their they're represented by two unions. One of them, the BLET, uh, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineer Trainmen. I might have messed that up, but it's BLET. Is the oldest union in America. It dates back to 1863. Uh, it's the one that uh, noted American socialist Eugene Debs was very prominent and made a name for himself in. Has a, it's intertwined with American history in so many deep and fascinating ways. Um, 
The other one is is called Smart TD. It's an acronym, and I won't remember it off the top of my head. But basically, it's a transportation and industrial workers union um, that also has a has a rich history in the U.S. Um, so these workers are repre- they are unionized. Uh, they currently do not have a contract. Um, they say BNSF is not negotiating in good faith. They haven't had a contract in three years, which also means they haven't had any raises or, or you know, uh, other kind of, you know, workplace improvement measures implemented over the last three years. Um, if and when they do get a contract, those raises would probably be retroactive. But as of now, there's no evidence they're going to have a contract anytime soon. In terms of why these unions aren't protecting them from these horrible policies, um, the upshot is because a federal judge won't let them. Uh, the slightly longer version is freight rail workers, because of their incredibly important role in the U.S. economy, especially now during what is widely regarded as a supply chain crisis that you know people have different opinions on whether or not we'll ever exit this supply chain crisis. It, Nevertheless, um, there is a general recognition that we need to do everything we can to keep as much of the supply chain moving as we can. And freight rail is a hugely critical element of that. As a result, there has been a longstanding uh, measure that the federal government can do, which is basically ban freight rail workers from taking labor action. Uh, you know, slowdowns, sick outs, strikes, these types of th- pickets, these types of things that would you know, slow down the rail. And the idea is that it would give workers, I guess, too much leverage, um, you know, because they could demand, they could basically demand anything they want and companies would give it to them because they're so critical to the, uh, to the supply chain. That's kind of like the theory of why these laws, why these provisions are good. Um, anyways, when Hivis was first announced and implemented, the workers immediately knew how awful this policy was even before it was enacted. They didn't want it. They voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. Um, but before they could act on anything, you know, whether they were serious about striking or not, BNSF filed a for a temporary restraining order from a federal judge who uh, grant, you know, basically saying, don't let them do this because, uh, you know, it, the, uh, the legal distinction is a judge cannot issue a TRO for freight rail workers striking over a quote-unquote major dispute, but they can issue a TRO for anything labeled a minor dispute. Now, uh, the natural follow-up question is, what's the difference between a major dispute and a minor dispute? And I read the, and I read the, you know, the, the, the law and the judge's rulings and talked to a bunch of lawyers, and the short answer is, there. There is no difference because a judge has never actually ruled that any dispute is major. Every dispute has always been minor. So uh, my kind of stock answer to that is every dispute is a minor dispute until a judge says it's a major dispute. And to date, no judge has said anything is a major dispute. So there are no major disputes. In any event, uh, the the very short answer is the judge uh, ultimately said you can't take any labor action over this high-vis issue. You can't strike, you can't pick it, you can't do sick-outs, you can't do slowdowns. And if you do any of that, I will hold, you know, the union in, you know, in, in contempt of court and, you know, your union officers will go to jail. So essentially workers are banned from doing 
anything about high-vis, despite having a union, despite having all these worker protections, despite having this regulatory apparatus through both the Federal Railroad Administration and the um, Surface Transportation Board, both federal agencies that are supposedly supposed to, you know, prevent stuff like this from happening. Uh, it's happened. Okay, what are the... <laughs> It's just so bizarre to me that there's no recourse and no consequences. Well, like, there are consequences, I suppose, but it doesn't seem like there's consequences for the company. Like what has happened to – let me ask you, I guess, what have been the knock-on effects of high-vis? What has it done, A, to the labor force uh, from kind of a high level, if you can answer that? And then B, has it been good for BNSF? Uh. So for the, the labor force question is easier to answer. So I'll just answer that um, first. The the short answer is a lot of people have quit, <laughs> as, as you can probably guess. Um, there are some numbers floating out there that upwards of a thousand uh, BNSF workers have quit since HiViz was implemented. These are tough to verify for obvious reasons. Um, but I will say that the workers I've spoken to just, you know, talking about the kind of conditions at their specific terminals and workforces and rail yards, um, it seems to align with what they're seeing, which is everyone's talking about quitting every week, you know, one or two more people have left. Um, and you add that up across the entire network. And that seems believable to me. Um, and BNSF, you know, says they want to replace them, but you know, their workforce Again, these numbers, which I can't say for sure are accurate or not, but they seem anecdotally to uh, broadly reflect the state of things. You know, they've lost about an, on net 700 workers since HiViz was put into practice. And again, this is on the backs of or the tail end of five, six years of workforce decline across the entire industry. So things are getting pretty dire in terms of workforce uh, shortages. Now, for BNSF's perspective on this, um, the company basically isn't saying anything. They issue the same boilerplate statement to every media outlet, including us, that asks about it, um, in which they say, essentially, they think this would have been good for workers, and they're not really sure why workers don't like it. Uh, but they're you know listening to the workers' concerns and will modify the policy as they see fit. Um, as a quick aside note, they did actually modify one element of the policy up to date. Originally, workers were punished for taking time off if there was a death in the family. Now they are no longer punished. They can take those three days off without recourse. Well, um, well, as long as it's there's there's a caveat there, right? That's only certain members of the family. Right. Right. It's uh, immediate members of the family. Um, it's like, I don't, I can't remember the list exactly off the top of my head, but it's like mom, dad, wife, or kid is like the list. And so, so, you know, obviously that leaves a lot of, you know, family members that lots of people are very, very close to not on the list where if they die, um, you know, you don't get any time off to, not to not only like bereavement leave, but like to attend the funeral, like you have to find, you know, you have to find some other way to attend the funeral. And what a lot of guys that I spoke to have had to do is just, you know, take the 15 point dock 
for not going to work the day of their, I think it was sister-in-law's or brother-in-law's funeral. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty, you know, BNSF says um, basically that they don't understand why this is bad, why workers wouldn't like it. Um, But the the kind of broader story here, and uh, this is one that's kind of like the fundamental tension in the industry right now, is over the direction of how much of the trains will be automated in the future and the future of this two-person crew aboard each train. Because most of the workers I talk to, and again, this is like, you know, this is the opinion, uh, this is like the opinion of the workforce, I would say broadly. Um, But the company has not, uh, for obvious reasons, said any of this. Um, Is that the company has long, you know, the, the class one railroads have long wanted to eliminate the conductor role from the freight rail crew and make them one person train operations. So just an engineer. And this would obviously save them a lot of money in labor costs. Um, They say it wouldn't impact safety at all. Obviously the workers disagree. Uh, But what most of the workers I talk to say is that they think high viz is basically a way to get so many workers to quit that then, or, you know, fired for losing all their points, that then BNSF can go to the Federal Railroad Administration and say, we can't run the trains unless you allow us to run one crew member at a time. So either the trains stop running or, you know, we we can go to our one-person crews. And at that point, the FRA may, may say yes, because they want to keep the economy and the supply chain moving. So that's one of the prevailing theories as to why BNSF is doing this. I would much rather, you know, be able to sit here and tell you that I spoke to BNSF executives and they explained to me why they're doing this, but they're not doing that to anybody. So like they haven't said why they're doing this other than their boilerplate statement, which doesn't actually say anything at all. So we're kind of just left to go with what workers think is the case. And, and that's what they say. Um, and it accords with what the class one railroads have generally been doing for the last five to seven years. Um, so I don't see any particular reason to think it's not true. Is it, what are the consequences of having a one man crew? Do you think, uh, I mean, obviously they'll make more money, but other, but the stuff other than that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I personally think. It's hard to say for sure, because I think so much of the benefits or drawbacks on two versus one man crews is very location specific or condition specific. If you have crews that are generally, you know, engineers who are well rested, running well-maintained trains along predictable routes with really good technology to act as kind of like a, you know, secondary backup safety service over and above what the engineer can do. I can totally envision a scenario in which one person crews can be safe. Um, but the fact of the matter is virtually everything I just described is not the case in American class one railroads right now. And so I think it's a bit. I think nobody really knows how safe it would be is the is the kind of is my read on the situation. Um, and, you know, I've certainly heard lots of anecdotes from workers about situations where they felt having a second person on the train save people's lives for various reasons. Um, you know, one of them, for example, it was, you know, like I said, these trains can be miles long now. And there was one instance where 
the train was crossing through a town and in a lot of these towns in the Midwest and the West and the South, you know, like kind of like the middle of the country, a lot of the trains run train tracks run directly through towns, like kind of splitting the town in half when a train is going through. And there was one instance where an ambulance was stuck at the cross. You know, someone had think I had a heart attack or something. And they were trying to get that person to the hospital, but the train was literally blocking the way. The town has, you know, one or two railroad crossings, and this three-mile-long train is blocking all of it. Well, the trains don't run that fast. You know, it was going to take, like, probably another 45 minutes for the train to get through, half hour, 45 minutes. So instead, they stopped the train, sent the conductor out to split the cars, and then moved the train forward so that the, the ambulance could get through. You know, and these are, like... I'm sure BN I'm sure you know BNSF or other class 1 railroads are sitting there thinking, well how often does that happen is that really worth, you know, like the expense of having conductors on all the trains all the time. And uh you know from a strict accounting dollars and cents figure, I'm sure they could come up with a rational argument for why it isn't, but that doesn't kind of answer the more humanitarian question, which is like what are you really accomplishing by getting rid of this of, of the two person train crews for these instances? Um, especially when you're so profitable to begin with, it's not like BNSF or any of these other class one railroads are struggling. And like, this is a matter of we either get rid of these workers on these trains or we, you know, run out of money and go bankrupt. Like BNSF announced record profits last year. Uh, you know, they made like $8 billion, I think it was. So, and, you know, it's just, so it's like, it's not just the individual question of, is it really worth it on a dollars and cents level? It's also kind of the broader question of what are we really accomplishing as a society by getting, you know, if we were to get rid of the second person from the crew, and is that really in society's best interest? Um, you know, and, and, sh- and is there a role for the regulatory states to step in and say, you're, you know, BNSF, you're granted this monopoly over your, you know, service area to, you know, make lots of money. And as part of that, we're going to say you got to still employ two people per cruise because sometimes it saves lives. I don't know. I've got some, I have some questions from chat that you may not have answers to, uh, but you're a huge train nerd. So I'm going to ask them. Um, okay. XShow123 asks, uh, I guess we need reference points. Like, do other countries run one-person crew, like Japan, for a start? Do you have any idea what other countries do? Yeah, I've I've actually looked into this a little bit, and I haven't found any straight answers. Um, there are, but even even in the U.S., there are freight rail lines that run not only one-person crews but entirely automated lines. Um, but the caveat is they're short; the trains are shorter. And they're highly predictable routes. You know, like, they're very isolated. They don't have curves. They don't have dangerous areas. They carry a very predictable load on the trains so that there's no weird dynamics between, like, the push of the rear of the train, you know, exerting undue load on the middle or the front of the train. You know, just, like, all these weird dynamics aren't the case. Obviously, I think a a lot of listeners would know that, like, passenger trains run automated all over the world um including in the u.s so that's a that that's a thing as well but so much of what makes freight rail needing arguably two people but certainly one person in a lot of people's mind is the kind of unique dynamics of these very very long trains operating in very very remote areas 
which is the case in a lot of U.S. freight rail. So that's kind of a long answer, which is to say I don't know the answer to your question. But I would also say that while international comparisons are important and we should definitely take into account when evaluating the one train person argument, there are also differentiating factors about the U.S. freight rail climate specifically. And one of those things is we tend to run much, much longer trains here than they do in Europe freight rail. Uh, Somebody comments, passenger trains tend to have one crew member in the cab, an engineer, and conductors throughout the train. One train in Australia that pulls iron ore is fully automated. Yeah. Um, I do have another one because I don't know what this term is. Space Jam Clam, who I think knows a lot about trains and a lot about this situation, says positive train control is also going to be used as an argument in favor of one person crews. What is positive train control? I have not heard of this. Oh, yeah. Thank you for opening the positive train control can oh, of worms. No. Uh, what have I done? Uh, okay, so positive train control is uh, it's when I when I referenced earlier, like a, a technological uh, system that kind of acts as a safety overseer for the engineer. I was kind of like alluding to positive train control. Um, that's that's kind of what it is. Uh, and so it was enacted by act of Congress um, that basically freight rail had to install positive trade control on their lines. And what it's intended to do is basically make sure, my understanding at least, is that it's basically intended to make sure that trains abide by speed limits. Um, so there are posted speed limits on all freight rail tracks, and positive train control basically is trying to avoid scenarios where the train runs out of control either because the engineer isn't paying attention becomes incapacitated or there are other kind of extenuating factors and uh so it's kind of like you know if the if the train was on some kind of like cruise control monitoring system you can kind of think of it that way a little bit what it can't do is detect like obstructions in the track or, you know, it, it, or um, other kinds of like more active safety measures that would be more associated with like self-driving trains, if that makes sense. Um, and one of the other things I've heard is that from from workers is that positive train control doesn't always work. And sometimes positive train control itself kind of needs some human oversight. Um, so there's that kind of layer to things as well. It's not a perfect system. Um, but you know, they, it is generally going, it, it, the, the commenter is absolutely right. It's definitely going to be used as an argument in favor of one person train control, because what they're basically going to be able to say is, oh, well, we don't need another human in the cab to like help the engineer, you know, stay awake or make sure they're abiding by the speed limit or whatever. Um, because positive con- train control will do that instead. Let me throw this wrinkle in here, too, from another commenter. AL Bunny 357 says, Class 1s hold all the data on positive train control. No independent studies have been done on Class 1, and Class 1 won't share the data. Is that true? I believe it is, yeah. So, like, the other thing about all of this, and this is not just about positive train control, pretty much everything I've talked about so far, is you have to remember that these are private companies that are getting regulatory oversight from the federal government that anytime the federal government wants to know anything, they basically have to go to the private companies and say, 
can we please have the following information? And like, yes, there are legal mechanisms for them to require that information or for them to, you know, like basically subpoena that information. But that takes an incredibly long time. And the class one railroads have incredibly good lawyers and are very good at slowing down the process so that if they don't want to do something, it will literally take years or decades for the federal government to make them. And positive train control is not a terrible example of that. Freight rail basically, the freight rail companies hated positive train control until they loved it. And that's like one of those things where first they heard positive train control, oh, the federal government wants us to spend all this money on this kind of like technology that won't even allow us to save any money on labor. Screw that, like we don't wanna do that. We're gonna fight it as long as we can. Then they thought maybe they could, you know, use positive chain control to get rid of the conductor. And then they started to like it a little bit more and invested more in it. And now they're kind of at the point where they don't talk about how little they like positive chain control anymore. All right. Let's let's switch gears here um, here at the end. Let's end on a maybe not positive, but a little sillier story. Um, so this is another story that you wrote. Amtrak is streaming. Get the article up. Amtrak is streaming an empty railroad on Twitch to beef with freight rail companies. What the hell is going on here? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, this beef is still ongoing, by the way, there's, uh, I believe as we talk, there is a surface transportation board hearing on this very beef. It's incredibly boring. If you want to watch it on, it's a live streaming on YouTube. Uh, but basically what's going on here is as you may have heard, uh, Joe Biden, our president, is very into trains. He likes Amtrak. And one of his big campaign things was he wanted Amtrak to expand service, um, to serve more Americans and to provide better service for Americans. And one of the uh, routes that Amtrak has long had on its radar to uh, fulfill that mission and which they now have funding for thanks to the uh, Infrastructure Act that, that Congress passed under Biden Uh, is this route from Mobile, Alabama to New Orleans. And this Amtrak used to serve this route until Hurricane Katrina when, uh, you know, obviously the hurricane terribly damaged tracks. They stopped service and they never resumed it um, for various reasons. Well, they would like to resume it. And and lots of people in Alabama and Louisiana would like it to be resumed as well because they would like to ride the trains. Uh, However... The tracks are controlled by two class one rail freight rail companies, and they do not want Amtrak to resume service on those tracks. Now, the way Amtrak works for the for those who who may only enjoy their phenomenal service uh, <laughs> and, and and haven't dug into Amtrak's history is basically Amtrak is a corporation chartered by the federal government that, by law has the right to move along private freight rail tracks. Um, And in fact, is supposed to be given priority on those tracks over freight rail trains. Uh, But in practice, this almost never happens because kind of like we were just saying earlier, uh, freight rail companies prioritize their own trains and basically say to Congress and the federal government, if you don't like it, make us. And nobody has. So in this particular case, the freight rail companies that own the tracks and operate the tracks have said that they would need approximately 450 to $500 million to do necessary track upgrades so that Amtrak can run 
a combined four trains a day to two outbound and two inbound over these tracks. And Amtrak's beef with this is basically we could at is basically that that is not necessary to run the Amtrak service that these freight rail companies already run so few trains over these tracks that they could easily accommodate four Amtrak trains a day. And the freight rail companies have said, well, we'll see you in court, or at least the the version of court that railroads in the U.S. have, which is the Surface Transportation Board, which is why they're holding these hearings, uh, which I alluded to earlier, uh, to basically determine who is right. And Again, going back to the fact that freight rail companies control everything, the freight rail companies did all of the studies about how much infrastructure would be needed or what the tracks can accommodate on this particular question, because that's how these things are are done. They have all of the transportation demand algorithms, and they have all the necessary data to be able to answer the question of what can these tracks truly accommodate. And so what these hearings are about right now is... uh, basically who is right you know they're digging into the details of the modeling and they're trying to figure that out as for the twitch stream again because the freight rail companies control all the data amtrak basically said we're going to set up some live cams on this track along different points along this 144 mile space of track we'll set up the cams and we'll live twitch them on stream or (laughs) we'll live stream them on twitch and we'll see how many trains you really run over these tracks a day. And the first day that they streamed, I think it was something like four or five trains across the entire day. So uh, that's the beef. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it unfolds. Aaron Gordon. Let me hit the Aaron Gordon. Thank you so much for coming on to cyber again and walking us through all these wonderful train things. If you are watching on Twitch, please like and subscribe follow the channel. If you're listening on iTunes, like and subscribe, leave a comment. It does help other people find the show. We will be back a little bit later this week with another uh, conversation about cyber, possibly trains again. Really appreciate everyone for tuning in. Aaron, again, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope to have you back on. I would love nothing more. Bye, everyone. Uh, excellent chat today. Thank you, all the all the train nerds that came on. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.